Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Fulton County Elections Director Richard Barron addresses all those challenges on the June 9th primary election. Our performance this time was poor. I'm unhappy. The voters are unhappy. There's elected officials that are unhappy. My staff is unhappy with with what happened. My staff worked extraordinarily hard and long hours. And I think that gets lost in this is that the people that are behind the scenes put in long, long hours to try to make this election a success under really unprecedented circumstances. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, an update on the COVID-19 pandemic here in Georgia. Metro area hospitals say that inpatient demographics are changing. What does that mean? Grady Health Systems reports that younger adults, those in their 20s and 30s, now make up the highest percentage of the new cases. And data from the State Department of Health indicates there are 69,381 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,698. And there are 10,313 hospitalized. Now, this is all according to the Georgia Department of Health. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Voting machine problems, the delayed opening of voter precincts and long lines. These were just a few of the many challenges voters in Georgia experienced back on June 9th. And depending on whom you ask, the counties are responsible or Georgia Secretary of State or maybe both. Earlier this week, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger faced questions from the State House Government Affairs Committee. Why? Well, lawmakers were looking into the long lines and problems that plagued the state's June 9th primary elections. Now, Raffensperger says many of the problems with the new voting machines on Election Day were minor. And he said they could be solved quickly. But at it, travel time was an issue. Travel time for whom? Well, he says the plan maybe have technical support in every precinct for the November elections. But when they have to drive 10 minutes, 15 minutes, for example, Fulton County is a 70-mile-long county, and you have other counties that are 40, 50 miles, also big counties, it can just take a while to get there. So having additional increased technical support right there in the precinct, we think will handle that. So will that help? And also, what other steps can be taken to prevent future issues? Well, how about we focus on Fulton County? Joining me now is Richard Barron, Fulton's Director of Registration and Elections. Director Barron, as always, thank you for taking the time. I always enjoy being here, Rose. Well, let's begin with you because you have faced um, from civil rights groups, some voting organizations, a few county commissioners calling for leadership changes within the Department of Registration and Elections. 
NAACP President Richard Rose in a recent press conference said this. The Atlanta NAACP today calls for a revamping of the election system in Fulton County to include replacing the director, Richard Barron. Now, Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts basically said this is the team we have and we make it worse if we switch course midstream. Reassuring for you, Director Barron, considering some organizations have been calling for you to resign or be removed. You know, it's nice to have support at the county, but I, I think one thing that um, people need to keep in mind is a lot of the decisions that we made, right or wrong, and I think looking back, it's, it's easy to question some of them, but we made a lot of decisions when a lot when less was known about the coronavirus and we made those decisions for example to do video training rather than in-person training because there were indications to us we would have lost more poll workers had we done in-person training um, the lack of in-person training especially with the brand new voting system was something that hurt us and in, if, if a poll, polling place had an issue, even if we had tech support there, um, because we did have around 80 to 90 tech technicians in the field on that day, uh, it, it, the, the new system and the complications that went along with it affected us. And the, tr the lack of training was, was a big part of that. Was that the main reason for the long lines as well? Because there well, were I some reports of some machines not working. I, the machines that weren't working, a lot of it had to do with plugging too many machines into the same circuit. You can use different outlets, but if those are running on the same circuit, this new system draws much more amperage than, than the old system. We didn't have to worry about electrical issues with the old system this new system because you have you can have a number of printers printing at the same time you've got the bmd screens that need to be powered and you're also um, continually charging the uninterruptible power supply battery that that draws a lot of power did y'all not and, know about that prior to even getting the machines yeah. shouldn't that have been in the manual or something we had we got a report just before the March election. The Secretary of State's office sent a contractor around, and we received a report on that just before then, uh, before the before the March election, before we closed down. Now, much the polling places that have issues, um, a lot of them are private entities, and some of whom we lost during the election, but we were trying to decide, determine whether we were going to go in as a county and spend money upgrading the electrical systems, for example, in a church. Mm -hmm. And and because those private polling places can leave or they have the option to, to discontinue being a polling place, is it smart for the county to spend taxpayer money upgrading the electrical system somewhere for the polling places. Now we ended up losing quite a few churches 
And if we cross-reference those losses with the, the ones where we needed to put money into, into the electrical system, I'm sure there's going to be quite an overlap there. But can you so, understand? Let me interrupt. Can you understand someone saying, "Well, Director Barron, if that's the case, then why don't you all make sure you can put these machines and choose locations that can handle these machines?" And if there's a question because of whether or not it's a school or and with the pandemic, that planning, some better planning, should have been in place. Because well, I can understand and, someone saying these sound like excuses. Well, and I, I would say if we had had that report back in December or November from last year, it would have been much easier to, to, to look at each of those locations. But when you get them right before, before early voting for the March election and then we shut down, there wasn't the, the, some of the emphasis on that we had so many other, um, I guess, things we were looking at at the time, because for the 2016 general primary, for example, we only processed 947, or we received 947 ballots. Mm -hmm. We ended up uh, absentee by mail. We ended up processing more than 140,000 applications for absentee by mail this election but we still had to put our voting infrastructure in place, our early voting infrastructure in place. And then we had this deluge of absentee ballot applications. So I think that affected us on a resource level. We had to direct a lot of resources to that while still maintaining the voting infrastructure. And I'm not saying that's an, that is an excuse. What I'm, we just, had to focus some of our energies to things that we never had to before we were and it so it just became um difficult and i think had we done in-person training the poll workers would have had probably a better understanding of what they were to do with regard to the different outlets in the rooms where we had them where we had them located because when when we had texts go out and solve those issues, it was really a matter of just plugging the power in to a set, to a different outlet down the wall, and it, which was located on a different circuit. So we're going to have to look at mapping all of the circuits in in these buildings. Secretary of State Raffensperger has said seventy percent of voting challenges statewide happened in Fulton County. Is that a fair assessment? What I know is this. I, I haven't seen the numbers wh where he's, where he's um, saying that's from, but look, what I'm doing, I know from talking to plenty of other directors around the state and reading news accounts that we were far from the only county that had issues on election day. And Therefore, the, what I'm doing is focusing on success going forward. And we have some exciting plans. Uh, we're going to have a big announcement next week, uh, something that's going to be pretty exciting. And then we're also going to um, go back to what we used to do, which is, be, you know, we have been the leader in the state 
with regard to enfranchising voters through early voting. We had planned on having 24 locations for June. We ended up having, having five to open, eight at the end. You know, we saw a lot of long lines uh, in predominantly Democratic areas of the county because the turnout ended up being about four to one Democrats to Republicans. When we made decisions, we, we used the same formula to assign polling, polling place resources across the county. But, and because of the pandemic, we could assign only a certain number of machines and check-ins in, in polling places. Many of the polling places that we went to put restrictions on us as to how many people they wanted in there. We assured them we were going to try to follow CDC guidelines, no more than 10 people in the room. Let me ask you this, Director Barron, because there are a lot of folks looking for work. Mm-hmm. And if you all were in need of poll workers, and based on what you've been telling me, we've had several conversations now about you all are real strict and following the CDC social distancing guidelines. Could you open up more polling locations, even if you say, you know what, we're only going to take 25 people. But you have folks there who can work. You have, you know that you can offer more polling locations. Can you all not do that? Yeah, well, and that's one thing we're going to do. We are trying to get back. We lost, um, I think, as I said on the last ship, the last time I appeared, we lost, we had 45 polling place changes which is for this election, which we usually don't see that unless it's over a two-year cycle. So because for various reasons, we lose polling places. 44 of those 45 location changes were, were due to COVID. And so we had 164 locations. We had planned on 198. That affected us. We are going back to the locations we lost mm -hmm. and we are trying to entice them back as polling locations with the promises of decontamination afterwards, uh, footing the bill for that. We are also looking at new polling locations. We want to try to, to tap into some other resources to find locations but i think one of the keys is is increasing early voting again in the 2016 presidential election 59 percent of the voters voted early and in the and and we had another five percent of the voters voted voted by mail in that election so 64 percent of voters voted before election day the the aim this time between absentee by mail and early voting is to get 80% of the voters to vote before election day. And I think with absentee by mail and with early voting expanded, we're gonna be able to do that this time because more people are gonna participate in absentee by mail, especially since the pandemic is, is still gonna be with us in the fall. Therefore, I think the, in the 2016 presidential election, we didn't have issues with lines in, in on election day because we had so many people vote early. 
And I think around early voting in the future, we're just going to have to, to press that. I mean, if we, we do need early voting poll workers, people that are, that are tech savvy, that are willing to put in the three weeks uh, ahead of election day to work and they can go through our, our contractor, which is happy faces and they, they help us staff for early voting. But we're going to need that just for August because we're going to expand to 16 locations. Well, let's go ahead and get this out the August. way now. Let's For folks that are listening, some college students are at home. Goodness, they're the most tech-savvy folks I know. Y'all are hiring. Let's go ahead and get out of the way. What should folks do? Where do they go to get this information? They can they can look, go to Happy Faces' website and and apply and let happy faces know that they want to work early voting for the the august 11th runoff and again for the november election we have early voting that's going to start on monday july 20th for the august election and there are some important races on that ballot and we need to make sure that we have enough staff to work those 16 locations for the, to make the August 11th election successful. We are also gonna need people that are gonna be able to, to um, help us process absentee by mail because we do anticipate people voting by mail still the remainder of this year through the January federal runoff. I think we're gonna, we're gonna see that as long as this pandemic is with us, I think we're gonna see absentee by mail. All right, now if they say they heard this on closer look, are you guaranteeing them a job? <laughs> if they go through happy faces and they want to work early voting, we will um, do our best to place them. We have certain requirements that we are putting sure. in place for early voting workers, but yeah. The voice you hear is Fulton County Board of Election Director Richard Barron, and we're talking about steps being taken to prevent future challenges in August and November. Now, Director Barron, Fulton County Commission Chairman Rob Pitts has assembled this task force. I think it's two task force. Through your lens, will this help or hinder whatever mechanisms need to be put in place moving forward? Well, the internal task force has been really productive. We've had some really good meetings. We've looked at what what happened. A lot of what happened is, I think, unique to that election because of the decisions we made to do things a certain way because of coronavirus. But I think going forward, we've also, we've, we have someone, they, we have a consultant on there. We have county executive leadership. Chairman Pitts is fully engaged in it. And um, my staff is also engaged. So we, we, what's great about working for Fulton County is that we get support from all of the other departments and the leadership of Dick Anderson and Chairman Pitts on this, on this task force is welcomed and we're going to get ideas from them and move forward with it. The other, the citizens task force, they are looking at, they've broken up into subcommittees and mm -hmm. they are looking at various aspects of the voting process and they will engage the department as as necessary and then they'll be bringing bringing their recommendations or ideas to us secretary of state raffensberger announced that he is seeking legislation that would allow the states to intervene in what 
they deem as troubled county elections office. He also added that voters will not receive mail-in ballot applications in August and November. What do you make of that? Well, I think um, I think with the pandemic still here, um, it to me, an online portal needs to be set up for the for absentee by mail. That way we can work with a dashboard. They can do, the state can set up a portal that would go straight into election net, the voter registration system, in order for us to be able to process right off the dashboard, make it easy for us to reconcile, make it easy for voters to apply. Now we're gonna, Fulton County, we're moving forward with our plans to set up our own portal because we're unsure that the state is committed to doing that. We should note that he did say his office instead would like to open a centralized portal where voters can apply for an absentee ballot online. Would you be in support of that? Or you still want your Fulton voters to come through you all? I would be uh, in support of that. However, it seemed to be uh, in a meeting with my board on Monday, he indicated to them that it wasn't a had the decision hadn't been made as to whether they were going to go forward. So we're going to move forward with our own because I think at this point we need to take our own steps to make sure that we're, that we're protecting the voters of our county and allowing them to vote by mail. We're also making plans to send out an application to every voter in the county. Do you like the machines, the new machines? Chairman Pitts has said right here on this program, and I think I'm quoting him. Grace, my producer, will let me know. But basically, he's like, I don't like these. He didn't really say it like that, but he kind of said it like that. Do you like these new well, machines? We have to use them, so we're going to make the best of them. I mean, when Fulton County was not part of the SAFE Commission, in fact, none of the metro counties were part of the SAFE Commission, um, I think, by the time the, the commission made its decision. Um, a retired director from a metro county had been on it early on. So we looked at all of the vendors ourselves. And of the seven vendors we looked at, I told the salesperson for the, the vendor that was selected that they were our least favorite system and that it was the most poll worker unfriendly system. That was our assessment of it. Now, the state chose that system. That is Dominion, Correct. Correct. The state chose that system, and so that's the system that we have, and that's the system that we have to work with for the next at least 10, 10 to 15 years. Why so, were they your least favorite vendor to choose from? It, it, there were so many individual components to hook up, and it seemed to, to also require the most power, the most maintenance. It just seemed overly complicated to entrust setting all of that equipment up to poll workers on election morning. And I've spoken to several directors around the state and they said that their poll worker, it takes a very long time for their poll workers to set up the equipment. And they are very worried about how long it's gonna take in November when they have to put more equipment in the field. Director Barron, what would you say is biggest lesson you all, or you learned from this past primary Tuesday on June 9th? Well, I mean, we had a couple pain points that really, I think, 
set off a chain reaction for us. Um, I mean, looking back, I think we could have been much more, we, we should have opened up more early voting sites. I mean, that that is what Fulton County does well is early voting and we our performance this time was poor in that regard i mean none of us are happy none of my, i'm not i'm unhappy the voters are unhappy there's elected officials that are unhappy my staff is unhappy with with what happened my staff worked extraordinarily hard and long hours because and I think that gets lost in this is that the people that are behind the scenes put in long, long hours to try to make this election a success under really unprecedented circumstances. And I know that going forward, we'll get back to doing it as we did. You're only as good as your last election, just as athletes say, you're only as good as your last game, but um, it's, it's really the truth. So we have to move forward to August right now and, and make sure that we make August succeed, uh, as a, as a trial run for November. And we're going to have to get, train these poll workers to work with this new system. We're already looking at hiring a tech, a company that can supply us with the tech support we need in all the polling places. Are you comfortable, confident in it and going on record and saying that you want to assure voters that either in August and November, under your leadership, these elections will go more smoothly in terms of voters? Yes, because I think we're going to do, I think we know enough now about how to move forward with in-person training in, in spite of the, the pandemic. And I think we've, you know, the more the literature that's out there, the more recommendations that we've sought from people that know about the virus, I think that we've determined what we can do and so I think going forward, we're going to be able to get back to doing in-person hands-on training with the poll workers so that they can get their hands on this system before it goes into the field. I know that we've also talked with some other counties about doing, uh, getting together for a streamlined training program with, with the other metro counties and having our, our trainers meet and, and develop a curriculum so that we could have something like a, a Fulton poll worker university so that it would be different, a different type of training than we've done before. Mm -hmm. We know that we need in-person training. And that was one of the big factors in why poll workers had so many issues on election day. And finally, director Barron, if there are additional problems, the same problems, what level of responsibility should you be held accountable for? And then is it time to think about new leadership in Fulton County? Well, Whether it's through the I, board or yourself, both? Yeah, I mean, the, the, I'm going to be judged on how the next two elections go. And so right now we're concentrating on August. We're making plans for November. But 
I'm going to be held accountable. I think the the June election, and we've seen other primaries that have gone on around the country. There have been issues with it seems like almost every primary election that is that has taken place, and I think this is this is going to be an anomaly for us. And I'm confident just because my staff and I put on a, a we administered a very successful 2016 presidential election. So I'm confident that we're going to do the same thing. We've got at least one of our mobile voting precincts will be delivered for the November election. We're hoping that Ford can get a chassis to the other one so that we will have two mobile voting buses that will be added in addition to our, our election day or our early voting polling places for November. And I think that's going to be exciting because we're going to be able to get out. And in addition to our permanent locations and our outreach locations, we're going to be able to send these mobile voting buses out and put them in different locations around the county that will enable more people to get enfranchised through early voting than we've ever had before. Fulton County's election chief, Richard Barron, as always, I appreciate you coming on the program, answering the questions. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Look forward to next time. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Under the CARES Act, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance was going to provide emergency unemployment benefits for non-traditional workers, such as what we call gig workers or contract workers. However, there were so many that are right now even still waiting to receive their benefits. And as many Department of Labor agencies, they're trying to figure out how to process these claims to begin with. Well, this has left many gig and hourly workers struggling to make ends meet. Now, Steady is an Atlanta-based startup that advocates for gig and hourly workers. And they've recently received a grant to help its members during the pandemic. And joining me now to talk more about this is Adam Roseman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Steady. Adam, welcome. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I imagine you've heard, your organization has heard so many different stories from folks. Is there one that you can share that really just kind of hit you at the core? You know, I wish I could point to one, to be quite honest. You know, we, as you mentioned, um, you know, we've been giving away emergency cash grants. So, you know, when people come to study, um, uh, a large percentage of them link their bank accounts so that we can help them track their income and suggest how to earn better. Well, what we started seeing when the pandemic occurred was rapid income loss in those bank mm. accounts. And um, we identified those that had received uh, or uh, had that income loss and started providing them with cash disbursements generally much quicker than they were receiving unemployment. 
And, you know, the thing that um, has been most troublesome is that we've surveyed those recipients now, which are in the thousands that have received, you know, an average of about $800 um, mm. from us. And we found that close to 50% of those individuals come from our African-American community. Mm. And that's just frightening in terms of the, the, uh, the outweighed impact that, that we've seen. So I think if there's one thing that just you know, is is heartbreaking to the core. It's the impact that we've seen on African-American and other minority communities like the Latino community. Before we get into what you all are doing, let's back up a little bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with STEADY. I gave a brief one-line definition, but uh, let's talk about the backstory, the origin story of STEADY. How'd you all come about? So, you know, I grew up in Sacramento, uh, California with a single mom and who worked incredibly hard to make ends meet she was always my hero and you fast forward you know 30 years and my father who i didn't grow up with Mm -hmm. um, retired in savannah georgia without uh, adequate retirement income had to pick up work and it was very difficult for him to generate enough income from just one single job he was working in retail and so he had to explore working multiple jobs uh, to to fund his his living, similar to what my mom had considered earlier mm-hmm. in my childhood. I started looking at and really digging into how prevalent this was now today. And what I found is when I was a child, it was not prevalent at all. Less than 10% of the American working population had more than one job. Today, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, pre-pandemic, that number was approaching 50% of the working population. Um, so I became incredibly fearful and concerned over the drivers of what was causing that and decided that there needed to be an advocate that could help workers figure out how they're going to navigate and survive in this what we like to call the changing future of work. So Steady, is it a startup, a tech firm? It's hard always to draw that line. I don't, do we still call ourselves a startup? So we, <laughs> we've been around you know, about three years now, um, you know, we're fortunately um, well capitalized to be able to deliver against the massive need um, that exists for the worker population are pleased to you know, be based here in Atlanta, um, uh, you know, amongst such a diverse community. And um, yeah, we're during this time, I think, you know, we're all absolutely heartbroken. But the thing that keeps us so incredibly motivated is just hearing those stories and waking up in the morning and going to bed tonight at night, knowing that we can actually have impact during this time. Steady. It's a web and mobile application. Take our listeners through how this works and and how gig workers in particular are able to use this platform. Yeah, I appreciate it. So um, a worker will will hear about Steady um, either through an online advertisement, a referral from a friend, um, a referral from a a bank or a nonprofit. um, And they'll come to the Steady app, uh, download the app, register. Um, They'll choose to link or not link their bank account. There's a lot more functionality available to those that do because Mm -hmm. the core of our our system is built around the intelligence of that data that we can see in a bank account in terms of how people have been earning, spending, do they have overdraft fees so that we can make suggestions to them on how to improve their financial lives. Um, And then once they're in the app, um, there's a variety of different features for them to explore. So, you know, they can pursue sort of our initial use case of you know, do you have income today, but you're not making enough? And do you need to find a way to um, to generate supplemental income or extra income or side gig, as a lot of people will call it? Mm-hmm. Um, we have over a million different ways to make money in the app. Some of those are gig, some of those are work from home, some of those are hourly work, um, and someone can go through and, and select based on their geography, what type of work they're looking for. Um, they can track their income. 
Um, they now are receiving personalized insights. So based on that bank account data, we'll tell you, hey, if you're working at Walmart in Atlanta, um, where are other people working at Walmart earning supplemental income from and what's paying the highest, right? So that you mm -hmm. can figure out how to make the most um, based on that data set. And then, um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, we've rushed incredibly quickly to add a number of new features, which we believe are critical during this time. Um, the first being telemedicine. And mm -hmm. so we're covering the subscription during the pandemic um, for individuals to have 24 seven access within the Steady app to a doctor on demand um, that can assess any problems that are happening from an urgent care perspective, guide them on if they need to pay to go to an emergency room, especially for folks that uh, may be uninsured or underinsured um, where they can't afford to just make a hasty decision. Uh, I'm going to visit a doctor if it's perhaps they're not sure. Mm -hmm. They can also pres prescribe pharmaceuticals and at only a $25 per visit cost to the member, which we don't collect any above passes directly through to the doctor. So we're providing that for free during this time. Um, in addition, we're providing clear guidance on what work is actually available right now. You call them members. So you actually, mm -hmm. folks actually sign up as members. So there is a, a cost involved. There's no cost involved okay. today. So we refer to them as members. We envision ourselves as kind of like an association, right? We're a community of individuals that have shared interests, shared challenges that we try to tackle. So we refer to them as our members. I understand that uh, this very big, large man named Shaquille O'Neal, <laughs> of course, he's an <laughs> NBA legend. He's been an advisor and an advocate for Steady. Yeah, it's amazing to have to have Shaquille involved. Uh, yeah, you mentioned he's large. I'm I'm large, but uh, I'm glad I get to be dwarfed when I'm in those <laughs> those conversations. He does uh, a lot him. for the community. He really does. Oh, it's it's amazing. People have no idea how much he does and how big of a heart that guy has. So you know, the times that I've seen him sitting with our steady members, just listening intently to their stories, giving them advice. Um, the times that he'll go and he'll visit with someone at their home, leave their home. And then call us and say, hey, go send that family four laptop computers. I'm going to pay for it, right? We say, no, we'll pay for it. It's steady. He said, no, I'm going to pay for it. We send him those laptops. None, none of this ever gets published. He does so much of that mm -hmm. day in and day out. He does. If you're just tuning in, I'm joined by Adam Roseman. He's the co-founder and CEO of Steady. And we're talking about how Steady, it's an app, is helping people right here in Atlanta and throughout the nation find work during the pandemic, particularly hourly and gig workers. Um, on average, how many people use the app per day, Adam? Yeah, so we have um, what we publish is our monthly active figures today. So we have nearly 600,000 people use the app today on a monthly basis. We have about 2 million people on the app in its entirety. And you all, through this app, you all have been able to help hourly and gig workers find jobs, not just here in the Atlanta area, but throughout the nation. That's right. Um, and we publish our impact statistics, which we'll be updating soon. But as of last year, based on that bank account data, we were able to measure that Steady's work in particular had a direct lift in the average income of those using the Steady app by $4,000 per year, about $338 per month. So about a 10% income lift based on the average household income of our members. Why the importance of knowing or seeing their activity in the bank accounts? That's to help you help them and to possibly help guide them in terms of expenses and maybe pointing them to any other resources that could help them? Is that the importance of that? Yeah, it is. And it's also, it's heavily focused on how they're earning. So when we uh, get a list of bank account transactions, we can see you have a deposit from Uber, you have a deposit from Home Depot. 
Um, we can then go and map how much you're making there, understand what industry you're in, and then look at uh, the account data of other individuals and suggest, hey, you're in retail, but there are people in retail at CVS instead of you know the job you're working at are making 20% more, and here's jobs available for you there. Mm-hmm. So it helps us acquire the data that's needed to build this community data set, right? Um, employers today have so much incredible access to data, which rarely is used for the benefit of the worker. Here, what we're trying to do is give the, the power of that data back to the worker um, by aggregating that community data and only using it on their behalf. Uh, how secure is this? You, you know, you start talking about folks' bank accounts, Adam. Yeah. How secure is no, this? No, it's, it's always a valid question. So we utilize um, bank-level KYC um, and security and authentication. So it's a Visa system that provides the uh, account integration. It's uh, run by Visa. Um, we actually don't provide that integration. It's through Visa mm-hmm. itself. It's a company called Plaid that they acquired for $5 billion last mm-hmm. year. Um, our general counsel, so our in-house attorney, um, was one of the individuals that set up the enforcement division at the uh, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, under Senator Elizabeth Warren. So we have uh, you know, every certification in place that you can imagine, SOC 2, CCPA, which is the new California privacy laws, uh, GDPR, the European privacy laws, um, all in place. And a lot of our team comes from another Atlanta company called Cartolytics, mm-hmm. um, which also works with bank data. Um, and so they've been uh, had experience for over a decade in that capacity. And Adam, you all were able to help some folks out with emergency cash grants. How did that work? And, and what was the, you know, how much money were you able to to help folks with on average? So we've been very excited to partner with a San Francisco-based nonprofit called the Workers Lab um, that helped to raise the funds for distribution. Um, We then uh, utilized our bank account data to see where people had income loss. And so based on income loss and seeing that they were in categories like retail and food services, Mm -hmm. we said, okay, we want to give you money to help you during this difficult time. And this was nonprofit money. And so we've distributed now over $2 million um, in an average of about $800 per family. Adam, I don't know if CEOs like this question, but I ask it anyway. How do you all make money? So um, today, you know, we're fortunate to be a a startup that's able to focus very heavily uh, for the foreseeable future on the delivery of our value to our members. Um, But we do the way that we generate income today is through we have a marketplace where if we see, for example, you have overdraft fees on your bank account will suggest to you, you can go open a bank account with a bank that has no overdraft fees, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't charge you fees. Um, we'll generate in that instance some amount of money, and then we share that money back with the worker. We call those our income boosters. So today you can go in and you can see advertisements for, in our steady app, um, Varo or Chime, two digital banks who charge no fees. Mm-hmm. We'll get paid an amount, and then we give the worker 75 or $50 to open that account and eliminate their overdraft fees. So we do that also with savings account products, insurance products, ways that we can lower the fees of our members. Mm-hmm. Uh, we generate a fee and then we share that back with our members and we keep part of it to help us fund our operation. Have you made a profit yet? <laughs> uh, we're not, no, no. At our, our level, that, that won't be for a while. Um, but um, you know, we have, we have some things planned down the road that hopefully we can continue to align our, the way that we make money with, um, with uh, delivering of value to our members. Are there many companies in this space? How would you define what Steady is? And do you have a lot of competition? Yeah, so um, most people refer to us as being a part of the fintech space, right? Financial technology, okay, gotcha. um, which would include you know apps like Mint, um, you know lending apps, digital mm-hmm. banking apps. 
Um, we're tackling it in a new way because what we, we look at is we're looking at work like um, uh, financial services. Mm -hmm. And our belief is that there's no more important financial decision you're going to make, especially as a low-income worker, than how you spend your time, what type of work you do. Um, and so our, what we're doing is connecting the concept of, of financial account data with um, work data. So especially, specifically like jobs boards type listings. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of sitting at the intersection of, um, of a, a financial recommendation app and a jobs board. Adam, before I let you go, as we wrap up, we've had a lot of conversations on this program about the unbanked and underbanked. Yeah, it's, it's terrible, right? So we survey our members and 80% of them um, can't afford a $500 emergency expense. We see in the bank account data, 35% of them average $70 a month in overdraft fees to their bank. Um, and then another 30 or so percent use digital payday lending technologies. We can't even see those that are using um, traditional payday lending. Um, so the numbers are, are, are just ridiculous. Um, and so the way that we're helping them today is, as I mentioned, referring them into lower fee banking opportunities, um, also referring them into, you know, the most um, uh, financially healthy credit building products like self-lender. But our belief is that the core of the problem is people just aren't making enough money. Mm -hmm. And the way that you solve that problem is by lifting their incomes. And that's why our core mission and our core theme is how do we help the low income population actually generate more income and maximize their potential. And we believe that's the only way that you're going to solve the problem. Adam Roseman is the co-founder and CEO of Steady, and we've been talking about the Atlanta-based fintech firm. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot about your business. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Recently, the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition celebrated the 10th anniversary of Streets Alive. Now, this open street initiative began back in 2010 as an effort to reduce traffic and promote safer streets and, of course, get people out on bikes. Since then, Streets Alive has grown from a one-time event to multiple programs throughout the year. This year, they had planned on hosting many events during the month of October. But who knows, will the pandemic impact this year's festivities? Also, how have recent events affected the city's transportation landscape overall? That's what I asked Rebecca Cerna, executive director of the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition. We recently met for a socially distant conversation right off the Beltline's East Side Trail. Rebecca, we're socially distant as we're here off the Beltline, and we see a lot of people biking. We've been hearing reports that during this pandemic, we've seen an increase in people taking to the streets on their bike. Just reflect on that, and have you been seeing more people on bikes during this time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, for people who work essential jobs that they need to be in person for, the bike has really become, uh, it was always an essential form of transportation, but it's become more recognized as that because of the cuts to MARTA bus service in particular. Um, so we're seeing a lot more people biking to get places, and then in communities where people are working remotely, we're seeing tons of kids and families on bikes. And I know as a parent, we're running out of things for our kids to do, so we're pushing them out the door and saying, go ride your bike. It's almost like a return to the 70s style of parenting, which I love. Well, at the time of this conversation, the state has pretty much reopened in a sense, and the rest of the country is reopening. And so we'll see more cars probably out, back out on the road. What are your thoughts on that? I saw some road rage on the way over here. 
I think some people are really acknowledging that there are more people out on foot, on scooters, on bikes, and they're slowing down. And then I'm seeing some other people who, who knows what they're dealing with and what's going on in their life, but they're speeding up because there has been less traffic. Maybe they got used to the no traffic Atlanta. So I think there's gonna be a transition period where we all need to be extra cautious on the streets as things, particularly traffic, start to increase. You and I have had so many conversations about Atlanta being bike friendly, those initiatives that a lot of organizations have tried to come together to come up with ways that everyone can share the road, so to speak, whether it's with more bicycle lanes, whether it's more awareness, all different kinds of campaigns. But during this pandemic, we've sort of had to take a shift because all of the focus has been on that. But as we get back to whatever this new normal is, what are those initiatives that you all are going to be working on still? Yeah, we just launched a campaign called Essential Transportation. And what we're asking for is for the city of Atlanta to just build the projects that we already have planned. We have years of planning that's been done. It's good work. We've got projects with a lot of community engagement and a lot of community support. And we need to build those safe spaces for people who they might have had their MARTA bus route cut and now they're walking further to catch the next bus. They shouldn't have to walk in the street to do that. They should have a safe space. We have a lot of what we like to call lit lanes because they're for bikes and scooters and other light individual transportation, small wheels. We have a lot of those projects in the queue that it's time to just build some things. We see the demand and it's time to build. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have some concerns that whenever we get back to the normal, there will be a focus on rebuilding the economy in a sense, maybe that those projects might get pushed back a little bit. I think what I'm hearing right now is that those projects might get pushed up because of the need for municipalities to reduce their budgets. Things like lit lanes, tactical sidewalks, which means not waiting years and millions of dollars for the full concrete pour, but putting in curb stops and other light and less expensive materials that can create a what we call a tactical sidewalk. Those are inexpensive compared with other types of transportation projects. And they also preserve jobs because they rely on internal city and county staff capacity to do them. Speaking of projects, your initiatives and all the events that you all are involved in, those have had to be pushed back or either canceled. How have you all been able to weather this? Yeah, well, one of the first things that we had to do was take our bike classes virtual. How'd you do that? Well, you know, it was surprisingly seamless. Like everybody else, we're doing Zooms and Google Meets. And the interesting thing to me is participation actually increased because people were home, there's this increased interest, and it's a little bit more accessible to get to an online class than it is to get to a class in person and fight Atlanta traffic. And so we recently started offering a class for parents whose kids are biking. We wanna make sure that they know the right safety guidelines to share with their kids and hold up with their kids. And then we just started doing our true beginners class online. That one was a little bit more of a challenge. You know, there's a lot you can pick up from watching someone else do something and then trying it yourself. And so we're just experimenting with different ways to hopefully reach more people. And we've seen that with public engagement too. Every time there's a city council meeting, now you can call in and leave a voicemail with your comment. And those are read into the record. And I think that's sparked a huge increase in civic engagement. Now you don't have to go downtown in the middle of the day, you know, take hours off of work to have that civic input. You can just make a phone call.
Streets Alive is always a huge event. Not this year, though. Well, we'll see what the rest of the year has to hold. I wish I had a crystal ball, but our plan for this 10th anniversary year has always been to pilot a weekly approach. We've always wanted to do this on a more regular basis. And so we were planning for this big, splashy weekly pilot in October. Now, at this point, it doesn't seem all that likely, but I think some of us are holding out a little glimmer of hope. But we still have that plan to do the weekly, month-long pilot at some point, whenever it's safe. You know, you mentioned October because October is pretty far away. What are the concerns you all have in going ahead with the anniversary, but then you get concerns about another surge in the coronavirus or? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll follow the safety guidelines that the mayor's advisory committee is putting together. I was just reviewing those this morning and the phased approach. I think it's the right approach. You got to rely on the data and the data needs to be good and we need to be listening to the experts. So, you know, if we're in a position to do Streets Alive in the fall, then society will be in a great position and that's what I'm really going to be excited about. The city's Department of Transportation, still fairly new department, but are you encouraged that by having it and a commissioner that something will get done? Absolutely. I've been following city government for a long time and I know that progress happens slowly and then it speeds up and then sometimes it goes back to slowly again but I think we're in a, a speed up phase and you can hear people are so ready for it but really the department is so brand new in the scheme of transportation projects I think this next year will really tell us a lot. Let's wrap up talking about this summer you know some have said oh is our summer lost due to the economy and we're not sure how many festivals will come back, but what's your message just to anyone in terms of enjoying the summer, even if we don't have all these festivals? And I guess this is where you plug Rebecca's message about <laughs> enjoying your bike <laughs> or any message you choose. I mentioned earlier, I'm just loving seeing all the kids out on bikes. On the other hand, not everyone has a bike and not everyone can get one right now. They're in high demand. So we started a program called Bike Match where people can donate an extra bike that they might have, or maybe they're getting a new bike, to someone who needs it for transportation. And we connect them, partnering with SOPO, the bike co-op, to make that happen. So how can someone find out more about the bike match if they want to do that? Yeah, if you go to our website, atlantabike.org slash bike match, or you can look for the hashtag bike match on social media, then you'll be directed to a forum, fill that out, and we'll get you connected. We have a Grady High School student intern who's doing all the, the legwork for this. And I think, you know, looking at other cities, I was just following the transportation leader in Oakland who was saying, we need a bike distribution program to be part of the recovery because bikes are really public transportation. Scooters are public transportation. We need to be thinking about our micro-mobility. We clearly need to refresh our bike share program here in Atlanta. I think it's time for scooters to figure out a way to safely sanitize and be put back in the mix. Well, that's an interesting point because someone would say, well, even with the bike share program, how do we ensure, you know, the safety and sanitation of that? Yeah, I think we need to see micromobility as public transportation. Uh, we're sanitizing our public transportation systems and learning how to do that. And I think we need to do the same thing for bikes and scooters that are shared. I have to ask you about your bike. What type of bike is this? I have an electric assist bike. So... I just set it and forget it with this bike. I'll ride all summer and not even really think about it. Flattens out the hills and it just makes August a breeze.
It's very fancy. <laughs> I love it. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for meeting us out here. Good to be out of the studio, huh? Absolutely. Get out in the sun. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.